Let's pray. Thine be the glory, O Lord, this morning. Thine be the glory. From our singing and our praying and our preaching, we pray that you would indeed be lifted up. Father, we are thankful that you use mere men and women to accomplish your tasks, to help us be led in singing to you. We're thankful for elders that lead. We're thankful for people that by example, worship faithfully in the pew. Father, we're thankful for men who bring us your word. But Father, in all of that, it is your glory that we desire even now. So Father, we pray that as the word is opened, that you would be the preacher, that you would speak to our minds and our hearts, that you would raise us up where we need it and that you would bring us low where we need it. We pray, Father, that in the the minutes to come, that you would be lifted up and you would be exalted above all things. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 85. Psalm A few weeks ago, a simple chapel service at Asbury University uh, with um, a pretty unremarkable sermon turned into an extended time of prayer and confession among the students. That led to an even longer and ongoing time of prayer and preaching and singing and scripture reading that last a couple of weeks. Many proclaimed immediately that this was God sent revival and they were overjoyed that it was taking place. Others remained hopeful, but were hesitant to say whether or not this was actually a move of God in revival. A few, not unsurprisingly, on Twitter said there's no biblical precedent for revival whatsoever. How should we think about these things? How should we think about revival? Is it biblical? What does it look like? How can we know it when we see it? Why would we want it? That's what we want to think about this morning. And we can begin by trying to understand first what revival is not. What revival is not. When I was younger, uh, pretty much every year our church would have a two-week revival. And this was essentially either our pastor or a guest speaker that would come in. And every night for two weeks, gospel preaching would be, would be heard. And the goal was to bring our friends and our, our families uh, that they might hear the gospel of Christ and be saved. There's nothing wrong with that kind of outreach event, but we should not call it revival. Revival is not evangelism. Evangelism is essential, an essential activity of our church, but it's not revival. Revival cannot be reduced to a methodology or a calendared event. You cannot plan for a revival like you can a series of sermons over the course of a few weeks. Likewise, true biblical revival is not driven by emotions or experiences. People at Asbury said, I felt God's presence. I I hope you did. 
But was there more to it than that? Was, was it just your feeling or your emotion? It's good to be excited for the things of the Lord. Hopefully even thinking about the biblical truths that we've sung this morning. Your emotions, your affections for God were moved. But just because we have an excitement for the things of God doesn't necessarily mean that we are experiencing revival. Emotions can run high one minute and low the next. In high school, I would go off to youth camp and I would be on a spiritual high. And by the next week, I was back in the same old ruts of sin. Some strong emotional experiences often come with genuine revival. But we cannot merely point to an experience and say this is evidence of revival or even a reliable indicator of a genuine spiritual experience. Jonathan Edwards made this clear in his day as both a pastor and a theologian who experienced genuine revival. He said emotions are no guarantee, are no guarantee of love for God or an experience of His reviving presence. In more recent years, again on Twitter, a Christian woman explained how she often felt a very specific kind of feeling and emotion when she was singing in Sunday worship, and she believed that that was her experiencing the presence of God. Then a few years went by, and with some friends, she went to a secular concert. And at some point in that concert, singing these songs, being a part of it with the band, she had that same emotion, that same experience that she attributed only to Sunday mornings. And she confessed what became clear to her was, I really just enjoy music. Revival is not merely feeling deep emotions. Moreover, revival is not rooted into our individual needs. Maybe we're struggling with sin, even a life-dominating sin. Maybe life has raked us over the coals and we're smarting from the pain and we need God to show up and be God for us, to cleanse, to renew, to comfort and encourage. Wonderful. But in biblical revival, God's people experience real and lasting change that is bigger than just us and the individuals and what our needs are. Biblical revival is ultimately about God and about His glory. All of this being said, there's no chapter and verse that we can point to. There's no one place in the Bible that says, here is biblical revival. And so we have to piece together our understanding, both from what we see in the Scripture and the clear teaching and emphasis that's there, along with patterns that we see repeated in church history. And when we do that, we first need to understand that God doesn't use anything extraordinary to bring revival. If indeed revival broke out at Asbury, it was with a pretty unremarkable sermon. And he often does that. The plain, simple preaching of God's word. And yet, the fire falls and God's people are changed. God uses the ordinary means of grace that he has established clearly. Prayer, the word, and the gathering of his people for worship. And yet, he does something extraordinary through those ordinary means. He accomplishes sometimes in a few weeks but would normally take years and years to accomplish in the life of his people. And so in this way, biblical revival is kind of an echo of what happened at Pentecost when God's Spirit fell in a powerful way on the believers at that time, filling them, empowering them for ministry, seeing not only God glorified, but many coming to genuine faith in him, a, a remarkable change coming over, such that by the time we get to the end of chapter 2 and there is a description of the church, we highlight that as an example of how all Biblical churches should look. 
And so we think about how not long after Acts 2 came Acts 4. Some persecution begins breaking out, and what do God's people do? They gather together and they pray. And they start with praying Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? We know that you are sovereign over all things. And so, God, they pray, give us boldness to continue to speak the gospel. And revival breaks out. They have a fresh filling of God's Spirit such that the room literally shakes with God's presence. And the immediate aftermath is a beautiful unity and loving fellowship and powerful, effective evangelism. So Martin Lloyd-Jones taught extensively on revival, and he prayed often for it, and he said revival serves two purposes. Those on the inside of the church are raised up to a new level of experience and understanding the biblical doctrine, and those outside the church are converted and brought in. And that's exactly what we should expect in biblical revival. Because biblical revival comes when God's Spirit falls on His people. And what does the Spirit love to do? Point people to Jesus. And when God's people have a greater vision of who Jesus is, they mature, they grow, they worship more rightly. And when outsiders have a vision of who Jesus is, they get saved. And so on the whole, I think Brian Edwards, a pastor in the UK, offers a well-rounded definition of what we should expect in true biblical revival, bringing together both the biblical data and church history. Here's what he says. Revival is a sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit that produces an unusual awakening of spiritual life among God's people, resulting in an awesome awareness of God, a sincere repentance for sin, a deep longing for God and holiness, and an effective passion to reach the unsaved. It is generally accompanied by a large number of the lost coming to true faith in Christ. Revival is something extraordinary, and it's something from God. It is initiated by God, and it is glorifying to God. And so we can't force God's hand to bring revival. We can't follow a methodology. We can't follow a pattern. We can't say the right things and do the right things and say, okay, now God's going to show up and bring revival. It doesn't work that way. God is sovereign. But God does invite us in multiple places throughout the Scriptures to pray for revival to plead with him, to ask him to rend the heavens and come down. Even in Isaiah 62, the Lord himself says that he has put people among his people, among Israel, like watching on the wall, and he says, I want them to give me no rest until I make my glory manifest among my people. Think about that. God is saying, I want you to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying and to not let me rest, but to keep coming and ask for the blessings that I desire to give. So what does a prayer for revival look like? That brings us to Psalm 85 this morning. Let's stand in the honor of God's word as I read Psalm 85. I encourage you to follow along. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? Your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. 
let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word. You may be seated. Psalm 85 is an example for us of what it looks like to think about and to pray for genuine revival. And so if we are to follow the example that God has given us here, we will do four things. First, we will remember God's previous grace. We will remember God's previous grace. Now the psalm does not give us an exact indicator of when this was written. All we know for sure is that it was written after David established the tabernacle in Jerusalem. You say, how do we know that? Because it was written by the sons of Korah. And David is the one who established the sons of Korah as the helpers for Israel's musical worship. But notice there's no mention of temple, there's no mention of king, which makes that rather odd, unless this is written much later than David as part of the exile's community's return. In fact, I think most of the older translations render this word fortunes as captivity. So, so the, the Lord restored Jacob from captivity. And I think that helps make it clearer, as many commentators point out, that this arose from that Israelite community that came back after exile in Babylon. We can read books like Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah to see what's going on in this returning community. Here is a group of largely faithful Israelites that were brought back from exile, which God has now brought into the land just as he promised he would. But what's there? Remember that part of going into exile was the absolute destruction of Jerusalem. The the, the burning over of the city after two years of siege. They are living meager lives, both physically and spiritually. There's no idolatry but neither is there much joy or vibrancy. Israel needs to be revived. But what hope is there that God would actually do this work? That God would actually revive His people? Well, the psalmist says their hope lay in the previous grace that God had shown them. Psalmist writes, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Remember back in the passage that Pastor Michael read for us earlier today and from Exodus 34, before that, God has rescued Israel from Egypt. He has established his covenant relationship with him. Many in Israel were unbelievers in a, in a salvific sense. We will not see them in heaven. Though some were believers, a small faithful remnant, and yet all of them are part of the community. It was a mixed covenant community. And yet that larger unbelieving part ends up bringing death and destruction for even the believers because they were not faithful to the Lord. They didn't trust Him. They didn't believe Him, and so they were idolatrous. And even before we leave the book of Exodus, if you know the story, you you, you hear the hints of it in in Moses' dialogue with the Lord. If we're going to go forward, you've got to be with us. I can't do this by myself. Why? Because Israel has already shown themselves to be faithless. They saw the Red Sea depart. They saw all kinds of plagues come down all over Egypt except where they lived in Goshen. They saw the death of the firstborn. 
And yet the first chance they get, grumble, grumble, complain, whine. Why is God treating us like this? They engage in idolatry. They make a golden calf. And God would be well within his rights to open a hole in the ground and swallow them up and be done with the whole thing. But he didn't do that. He showed patience, patience with Israel then. And even as they persisted in, in living lives contrary to the covenant, disobeying his rule and bringing about the promised covenant curses, he waited for hundreds of years and sent them prophets to warn them and call them back to faithfulness before he actually kicked them out of the lane and sent them into exile. And then after that, he restored them just as he promised. He kept his word. He said, you can come back now to the land after the years of exile. Why would he do any of that? It's because of who he is. Again, we heard it. He is the Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God not only called Israel to be committed in their covenant, but he committed himself to them. In all of his love, he set his steadfast love and faithfulness on Israel. He would not leave them to perish in exile. He would not leave them to suffer the consequences of their disobedience forever. He saved them. He turned away his wrath and he brought them back that they might be his people again. But what do they need? Spiritual revival. And the psalmist is encouraged to cry out to God and plead for it. Not because of anything they have done, but because of everything in God who He is and what He has done in the past. He has shown them grace. He has promised grace. And so the psalmist says, we must pray for revival. Sometimes if we stop and we look around and we consider the state of the church and our culture, we can get easily discouraged. It's not that there aren't good things happening. It's not that there aren't healthy churches. It's not that there aren't new churches being planted. But many churches who were once clear on the gospel and enjoyed vibrant ministries have drifted into shallower and shallower theological waters that little resemble classical Christianity. And groups like Legionnaire Ministries now annually do surveys showing the increasing tepidness for the things of God and the low commitment to His Word among people who profess to be evangelical Christians. People that profess to be believers in the evangel, the gospel. And that they don't regularly attend church. And something like 20% say there's other ways to get to heaven than through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's deeply concerning. God has saved us, but we seem disenchanted with Him. So what do we do? We remember the grace of of the Lord in the past. Not just in saving us in our lives, not just in raising up this church and being kind to us, but all of the church in even in this country over the years since its founding. What has God done? We mentioned Jonathan Edwards earlier. He was part of the pastors that God used in the Great Awakening in the late 1700s, which saw many, many new believers come, many churches reformed and godly. There's the revival of the 1850s, which began in New York City when six businessmen decided to get together and pray every week for God's people. 
Then there's the global revival of the early 1900s that, sw- the 1900s that swept across Wales and India and Scandinavia and also here and in Korea. That Those were not just mere moments of excitement. Those were not just flashes in the pan. There were some good sermons. Some people prayed for a few weeks. This lasted a long time and there were lasting effects. Just in Korea, over the course of five years, 80,000 people came to the Lord. And they were continuing into the church many, many years later. Their conversions were marked by a deep sense of humility and repentance and acts of confession and restitution. One man went to a shop where he had been stealing the equivalent of hundreds of dollars of, of product all the time. And he lays the money on the counter and the shop owner says, what is this? He says, I've been stealing from you. But now I'm a Christian and I'm sorry. He was willing to lose face when in, when in his culture you never lose face. Because God had done something genuine in his life. And those stories are multiplied again and again and again, which you can read about in books and articles online. When we remember what God has done in previous times like this, we are encouraged to pursue him all the more ourselves and to pray for God to do it again. Do it again. God, we're languishing. God, we're drifting. Do it again. Show up. Send revival. Bring lasting change. As we follow the psalmist's example, we remember God's past grace, but now we should also be moved to plead for God's reviving work. To plead for God's reviving work. We see this in verses 4 through 7. Here the psalmist pleads for what he wants, namely God's salvation. Notice how it frames these verses. He appeals to the Lord in verse 4 as the God of our salvation, and in verse 7 he prays, grant us your salvation. Now if we're tempted to think in New Testament terms, We're going to have a very specific understanding of what we think he means there when it comes to salvation. We're going to think about one who passes from death to life, experiencing God's saving grace through faith in Christ and in God's promises. But remember where we are. Remember the context. This is the Old Testament. And while salvation may mean that, it may be something else. Often, the word salvation is also tied to physical deliverance. David can pray, God, save me from my enemies. And it's the exact same word, salvation. Give me your salvation. Let me go away unharmed from those that would seek my life. And so we have to look at the context. And here in Psalm 85, what do we see? Interestingly enough, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. If you didn't, I'm about to tell you. So now you'll catch it the next time you read it. There's no call to repentance. There's no confession of sin. Is that odd? No, it's not odd. Not because the people weren't sinful, but because that's not the point. Forgiveness has happened in the past. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. Future sin is warned against in verse 8. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But notice who is addressed. Here's the point I'm getting at. The saints, verse 8. Those who fear God, verse 9. The psalmist is not writing to unbelievers and telling them, you need to be saved. God, save a bunch of people. No, what he is asking for is that believers in Israel, those that have remained faithful to God and returned in exile, that they would have a fresh experience of the salvation they already enjoy. They've experienced His grace, but now they have grown stagnant. And the kind of disciplining anger that Deuteronomy 8 and Hebrews 12 can speak about is upon Israel at this moment. He is withholding the fullness of His blessings. Why? That they might hunger for Him. Him. Psalmist says, though, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations, God? Are you going to leave us with our, with our wheels spinning, languishing in the spiritual mire? 
No, he said, Lord, please restore us again. O God of our salvation, put away your indignation towards us. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That word revive that we see in the text is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of preserving a family line from dying out in Genesis 19, repairing a city in decline in 1 Chronicles 11, reusing stones from a broken down wall for a new one, Nehemiah 4. And in Psalm 30, restoring health from a sickness that, that, that had a man at death's door. In the context here, revival is nothing less than spiritual renewal. Taking what was in disrepair and making it useful and vibrant again. The psalmist wants Israel, what? Verse 6, to again rejoice in God. But the most important word in this section, really in the whole psalm, is not restore, it's not revive, it's you. Listen again how he pleads. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The psalmist is pleading for God to do what only God can do. In fact, the whole prayer for revival here in Psalm 85 is God-centered. It's about God's people who have received God's grace through God's covenant, being revived by God's mercy for God's purposes that they might rejoice in God. It is from Him and through Him and to Him. We were a farmer surveying our land, parched from weeks and weeks of drought, were unable to pipe in water from anywhere else. What would we do? What options would be open to us? Nothing but begging God, send the rains. Send the rains. And whether it's for our own languishing lives or the greater church in the world, we follow the example of Psalm 85 and we plead, Oh God, restore us. Revive us. Will you leave us lingering like this forever in this spiritual malaise, this weakness before the, before the world? Let us rejoice in you. If we want to see true revival fall on us and the global church, we're not going to start with planning. We're not going to start with manufacturing something within ourselves or with churches. We're going to plead for it in prayer. And how will God respond to our prayers? That's a crucial question for the psalmist. We're calling out to you, God, but but is God going to listen? Is he going to respond? What is he going to say? The psalmist exhorts the people, stop and consider and respond to the word of the Lord that he will speak to us. This is what we see in verses 8 through 9. If we're to follow follow his example, we must respond to God's merciful word. Respond to God's merciful word. Notice that in verse 8, the wording shifts from the plural we to the singular me, or the singular I, if you have other translations. I think his point is here is that the people have prayed to God for him to come and to revive his people, but now it is upon every individual to listen for the word that the Lord will speak in response to their prayers. Every individual must respond to the word that he is going to proclaim to them. And what is the word? What will God say to his people? The psalmist is confident that he knows what the word will be. He says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. If we can imagine a freight train 
loaded with all the multiform blessing of God for all areas of life poured out generously and endlessly, that train would be named peace. Peace. Because this word here is about more than just a feeling of calmness. It's more than just a peace that passes understanding. It's more than just not being at enmity with God anymore. This is the Hebrew word shalom. And it bears the meaning of wholeness of well-being that comes from the riches and the fullness of life with God. Everything is as it should be under His loving kindness and sovereign care. Now, if we were God, we've brought people back from exile, a people who historically had not listened to us, who were not obedient to our commands, who did not show loving fidelity to us. And yet we were gracious to them. We were merciful to them. We brought them back from exile. And now they're saying, give us more, give us more, give us more. How might we respond? We might say, you're alive, aren't you? You're back in the land, aren't you? I've given you some some regrowing crops, haven't I? You have what you need, and based upon the way you've acted, I can't really believe that you're asking for more. Might that be our response? Parents, have you ever responded to your kids that way? After times of disobedience? You're asking for more after what you just did? But God doesn't, God's not like us. He doesn't say what we would say. He speaks mercifully to His people. He speaks peace. Peace is the word. Shalom. Why? Because he is the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. That's who God is toward his people. Psalmist encourages the people all the more because of God's willingness to speak his blessings upon them. In verse 9, he says, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Who are the saints? Those who fear him. Those who worship and serve him in awe and reverence. But notice the warning. Notice the warning in verse 8. Those who hear the word must not turn back to folly. Isn't that what we're tempted to do? We hear God's word of peace. We experience God's blessing. We've, remem- we've remembered His grace. We've asked that He would show up in our life, and He does. And then we go back to folly. We forget all. And we just go back to the way things were. psalmist is telling us God's reviving word cannot be met with complacency. Once God pours out his blessings upon us, changes us, causing us to shine more brightly as his holy ones, his saints, we can't merely shrug and walk away. He says, don't do it. Don't take lightly what we're asking God to do when he does it, if he does it. When we pray, longing to be revived, we're doing so. Why? That his glory may dwell in our land, verse 9. Now, before the exile, if you remember from Ezekiel, before the exile, the the prophet has this vision 
what one of the most amazing and miraculous things that, that was a, a gracious blessing to Israel is that God man, visibly manifested his presence, his glory in the temple. And just as Moses, as we read earlier, was not allowed to look directly on it, neither were the high priests. The, the, the whole Holy of Holies is filled with, with smoke and incense so that all he gets is a glimpse of this Shekinah glory there. But it's a reminder that I'm not just pouring out this blood for the sake of tradition. When I offer all these sacrifices, day after atonement, day after atonement, there is a God who is here and He is receiving them and He is bestowing atonement on His people. Thank you, Lord. But before the fall of Jerusalem, the prophet has a vision and the glory of, the God, the glory of God departs the temple. It leaves, leaves the land. It goes off to the east and back up to heaven. And, and God's people, any, 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 any one of them that would have had any semblance of belief would have been crushed. So through Haggai, there is the promise that the glory would one day return to the temple. But what they didn't know is that it would be in the form of a little baby named Jesus. But, but notice what the psalmist is asking for here. It's not just the glory coming back to the temple, as amazing as that is. It is His manifest presence filling the land. Not just the temple, but all of His people across the land. In the early 1900s, God sent revival to the country of Wales. The effects were almost unbelievable. I mean that literally. I don't mean literally in a way that means not literally. I literally mean literally, okay? If it were not written down in historic record, I would not believe it. Here's what happened when God showed up in Wales, 1904-1905. Within five months, five months, there were 100,000 new Christians added to the church. After 10 years, 80% were still active in the church. Not to disparage anybody, but just to give you a point of comparison... The Billy Graham Association, when he would preach and go, they would track numbers, and they found that after five years, only 3% of people who came forward and made a profession of faith were still in church. There was such a massive outpouring of God's Spirit, it was unmistakable. The culture of the country changed. Suddenly, taverns and brothels closed up. There's no business. They can't pay for the rent of the building anymore. Outstanding debts suddenly repaid. Judges given the day off because there were no crimes to prosecute. The illegitimate birth rate dropped 44%. D.A. Carson says that on his honeymoon in the mid-70s, he and his new bride went to Wales. And as they're looking at historic castles, he says, I observed an older lady. And he says, I didn't want to be rude, but I thought she might have been old enough to be alive when the revivals came. So he began asking her some questions very politely at first, and then he began to press in and, and gently say, do, do you know anything about the Welsh Revival? She says, oh, oh, and she goes on and talks about it. She was a little child, and she had seen and observed these revivals, and she was so excited to recount what she had saw and how God worked. And she said, here at this very church, we saw the effects of the revival. And he said, what is it like now? And she said, nobody here much cares for those things anymore. Carson putted around the church for a little bit and he found they had gone completely liberal. They denied the gospel, they denied the resurrection, denied the virgin birth. They were church in name 
only. And when recounting this, he says, what happened? What happened after that massive effect in that one generation, this, this glorious change, what happened? And here's what he said. Too many people began seeking the experience of revival and not the one who gave it. They wanted the effects, but not the effector. They wanted the blessing on their terms, not God's terms. And Psalm 85 is hugely instructive for us along those lines we pray for revival. It helps us to see why we are praying. Yes, we pray out of our need, but seeking revival is never ultimately about us. It doesn't stop with us and what's good for us. We don't pray just for our own sakes. We receive joy and the power of God's outpoured presence, and we go away changed. But what's the result? That God's glory fills the land. The people from the outside look in and say, God is doing something. I don't understand it. I don't even believe in God, but it's obvious. He is made much of. And people turn to him. If we listen to his word of peace and draw near to God, pleading with him, trusting him to visit us in a powerful, reviving way, then we have to make sure that we don't seek to grab the glory for that work for ourselves but that we keep pointing people again and again and again to the one who sent the revival in the first place. This is what the psalmist did, and we should follow that example as well. In these final verses, we see that this this mindset leads us to trust in God's good provision. To trust in God's good provision. How can the Lord bring forgiveness and revival to a people who have not always followed Him well? We see the answer in verses 10 through 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. God's favor is personified here. His love and His faithfulness which flow out of His character as we've seen in Exodus 34 now embrace His righteousness and His peace. And so while we might be tempted to think of God's righteousness as coming into contact with sinfulness and producing wrath, here, here, peace, the perfect peace that's mentioned before, comes alongside righteousness rather than wrath. All of these manifest characteristics of God come together without vision, without contradiction. The metaphors of a loving embrace, they kiss. Of course, in the fullness of time, this beautiful imagery fully and finally came together at the cross of Christ. There the sinless Son of God took upon Himself the sinful failings and blatant rebellions of His people before God. It was the culmination of a life of obedient righteousness, a life that in no way deserved His Father's wrath. And yet His obedience continued even to the cross where there He did the will of His Father hanging in the place of His people, bearing the complete stroke of divine judgment against them and their wickedness. In Christ, as we sang, God's wrath was satisfied, such that forevermore He might speak peace, peace, peace to His people. Salvation won by Christ pleased God, such that righteousness came down from heaven for his people, even as faithfulness sprang up from the ground through the glorious resurrection of Christ. 
He died for his people, and now he lives for his people. Some of you are here, and I, I, I don't know if you know the Lord or not. But what I would encourage you to do is, is to think about this, this work that Christ has done on the cross to bring you to God, that God might speak peace to you, peace to you, to see in him such a sweet Savior who, who loved you despite your sin and died for you to bring you to God, that you would turn away from a life of rebellion, a life of doing things your way on your terms, and trust Christ who will bring you to your Creator wants to embrace you lovingly into his own family and become your heavenly father. Turn, turn today and look to him in faith. Trust Christ. And for you, dear saints, how can we not long for a fresh realization, a fresh expression of these glorious realities in our life and across our churches? Described in these terms, revival is a taste of the world to come, the new heaven and the new earth that await God's people when God fully dwells among them in their presence forever. It's a glimpse of the full expression of God's love for his people. A love that produces an evident and pleasing harvest in their lives. When filled to overflowing with God's spirit, we are like the land, yielding an increase of righteousness. Where the weeds of sin once grew unchecked in our hearts, sapping our spiritual strength to rightly respond to God's grace, now they wither and they die. The new harvest fills the storehouses of our hearts, born out of lives, lived in real and lasting obedience to our God. Not for us, but for the glory of His name, the glory of His name. Verse 12 says, yes, the Lord will give what is good. How can we expect anything less from the Lord? He has promised us every spiritual blessing, and so we have confidence to ask Him that which is good for that which is good. And I love it, Luke 11. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who receives, and the one who seeks, the one who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Do we, do we ask for that? That's a good thing. Paul commands us in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. Do we pray, God, I want this good gift of the Spirit's filling? And yet Jesus says the Father will give to all who ask Everything the Lord does and everything the Lord gives is for the good of His people because His very nature is righteous. Verse 13, again, pictures this personification of His righteousness. So overflowing is His righteousness that it's if it is a person that goes before Him preparing for the actual righteous deeds that He will do. What an encouragement to pray. And yet we have to remember, once again, God is sovereign in these things. When we pray, we're not bending His arm. We're not, we're, not, we're not twisting his will. We're not bending it to us. Even in sending revival, God is sovereign. We might pray for revival and he sends it to somewhere else because he's sovereign and we can't manipulate him. We may pray for revival and he may save it for the last day when Christ returns and answer it that way. But we can expect good things from God 
And therefore, we should pray expectantly for revival. But as we pray, we should ponder the haunting comment of James 4. He said to God's people, you do not have because you do not ask. Maybe we don't have revival because we're not asking for it. But then right after that, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so when we pray for revival, which I, I encourage you to do, Psalm 85 asks, pushes us to ask, what, what is motivating the request? Why are we asking for revival? Do, do we actually want more of God? Do we want more of His glory in our church, in our city, and in the world? Do we want to, to know more of His ravishing love with greater clarity in our lives? Do we want to see more of His people zealous, including us, not just those out there, but us zealous for His good work in the world? Do we want to see His kingdom spread? He by me made much of? Do we want to see us lift up his name by our holy lives? Is, is that what we want? Is that what we desire? Or are we looking for something else? Are we asking simply because we want an experience? Because we want to be part of something trendy or cool or historic? Is it because we want the glory of our name to be made much of and our little kingdom here at Providence to expand? People would say, that's where the revival started. If that's our motivation, then God forbid he ever send revival to us. Are we asking for revival while we ourselves intentionally linger in lackluster devotion, merely going through the motions of Godwardness in our everyday lives? Or are we seeking even now to live in obedience to the Lord, to live as his saints in the fear of him, to live in ways that brings us joy in him? This morning, I would challenge us to examine our hearts and consider what is offered to us in Psalm 85, to consider why we may not be praying for these things, and to consider if we are praying, what is motivating us to pray for these things. And then genuinely, humbly, urgently, let us pray together for true revival. Father, we are so thankful for everything that you have given to us. It would be so tempting to take lightly your grace to us, your mercy to us, the very salvation that we have through Christ despite the great cost at which we received it. And in doing so, it would feel foolish to ask for revival. And yet, Father, you desire to speak peace over us, peace in all of its fullness. And so we pray, God, that you would speak peace over us, that you would give us a fresh sense of the salvation that we enjoy in Christ, that you would give us a fresh filling of your spirit. Not Again, not, not for our sake alone, not, not for our glory, but for yours. That you might display yourself extraordinarily in our lives and accomplish great things for Christ's kingdom.